serving hungry spirits worldwide with a message of Yeshua HaMashiach. Zalis Radio, 24 hours a day. We thank you for leaving us the Holy Spirit so they wouldn't be orphans, but that, Father, we would be able to have your Spirit bring all things to remember. We will grow in understanding and knowledge in the name of Yeshua. Amen. What have, what have we been walking through is to walking, from, walking through Scripture, sort of a Sabbath journey as we walk from the beginning of the book, and we're going to seek to walk through the entire Bible to see what it has to say concerning Shabbat. There are a lot of opinions and views and attitudes about Shabbat uh, from those who keep it and those who don't. Lots of views, lots of traditions, lots of practices. So we've been seeking to walk through it so we let it unfold itself to us. Because a lot of God's Word comes as revelation. In fact, all of it does. God reveals His truth to us. And as we walk through Scripture, more and more of God is revealed. Who He is, His nature, His character. The more you walk with the Lord as a follower of Him, the closer you will draw to Him and the more you will understand about who He is, what He likes, what He dislikes. Even studying what He's done in the past, you learn a lot about how he, what he believes about certain things and how he does things. And that's kind of the way that I approach this, this walking of Scripture, you know, because I could just jump around to all the Scriptures and just present the Shabbat, but I went, wanted the congregation to see how it unfolds over time and maybe even challenge some of your own ideas concerning Shabbat. I think somebody walked with me last time, so they were blown away that they realized that for 2,500 years, there was no mention of the Shabbat. We're shocked. They figured it'd be on every page, but it's not. Some people were surprised that, that they had never thought that when God establishes Shabbat that he doesn't lay out what work is. He just says, do not work. In fact, when he first establishes it, he doesn't lay out anything for anybody to do. You just see what he does. That he did all his work of creating and making and making the earth and people and animals and all the things, and he finished on the sixth day, and when the seventh day came, it says that he rested. Literally, the Hebrew means Shabbat, means to stop what you were doing, to cease. So he stopped the working of creation, and he sat back, and he looked at what he had done. And on the seventh day, he said, the seventh day is blessed, and the seventh day is set apart, kadosh, holy. And that's it. He doesn't pull out, his 39 categories of what is work and what is not work and break those all down. He doesn't do that at all. In fact, he doesn't mention anything except that, hey, the seventh day is holy, blessed. Wow. And then the scriptures go silent. You just don't hear anything. You walk through a lot of stuff. Walk through Cain and Abel. You walk through Noah, the ark. You walk through the great flood that destroys all the families of the earth except for eight people. You got all this stuff going on. 2,500 years of stuff going on and not one mention of Shabbat. And I like that to sink in because we learn some things from that. We learn that when the Shabbat comes back, and that's where we left off, when the Shabbat comes back into the scripture, when it's mentioned, when it's put back in the spotlight, that, that is presented as something that's been going alone since it was established. And that's where I want to go over with you again. So in Exodus 16, this is the time, you know the story, the children of Israel out. They've left Egypt through great signs and wonders, and they start to complain, which they did a lot of. As soon as they got uncomfortable, they complained. So they were complaining that, we want meat, we want meat, we 
when things were better when we were in Egypt. I always think that's funny because, like, when you were a slave in Egypt, things were better. Leeks and onions by the Nile, and we, it was great. We want to go back to Egypt. It's sad when a follower of God wants to go back to Egypt. You know what? The funny thing about it, there are believers today that sometimes they start off excited. God does supernatural wonders, reveals their son, and they're excited about the son. I have found the son of God. I'm saved. And they get excited. Then this thing called life happens. You're in the desert. It's hot. It's miserable. Things are going on. You're wondering where your water's going to come from. You're wondering where things are going to, your provisions for life come through. And some people, when life gets tough, gets hard, gets rough, and nothing's working out completely, then instead of running to God and saying, oh, Lord, you're the creator of heaven and earth. You're the one that brought us through deliverance, through the Red Sea. You're the one that brought us freedom. Lord, I'm in a bad place. There's nothing wrong with telling God you're in a bad place. This is being honest. It's just being honest with him. Lord, things are happening. Someone's so threatening to kill me. I lost my job. I have a relative that just got sick. A storm came through and I got a leak in my roof. My water heater needs to be replaced. We can go on and on of things that happen. And we go like, ah. But the question is, have we learned to go to the one who made all things? And just tell him that. Hey, this is what's going on. And I need your help. I need you to move on my behalf and turn things around. Because you are my provider. You are my God. And I serve you. And I love you. Help, help, help. I look to you for my help. So we have to learn to do that. So that was what was happening here. But the children weren't asking for help. They were just complaining. You see, what's the difference between complaining and asking for help? Well, when you go for help, there's a certain amount of humility and respect that you have. That you go to God and say, hey, I'm in a bad situation. And I'm coming to you because I need you. When you complain, you're not even looking at the solution. You just want to say how bad things are. This is bad. I don't have any water. I don't have this. And you got attitude galore when you say it. You got the finger up. You got attitude. And you're looking in God's face and complaining. And if not God directly, his servant. In this case, they went after Moses. Then you start when you're complaining, you begin to exaggerate your situation. You brought us out here to die. Why would he waste all those miracles, all those plagues, opening up the Red Sea? If he wanted to kill you, he didn't have to just do anything. They were already killing you in Egypt. You were hiding your firstborn because they were killing them. God wanted to kill you. You just not show up, and that would have taken care of that. But people, they blamed. They said, brought us out here to kill you. So God comes on the scene. Moses is smart. Moses goes to God. God, the people are complaining. God gives Moses instruction. And that's the 16th chapter of Exodus. It says, The whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, If only we had died by the hand of Adonai in the land of Egypt, when we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread until we were full. But you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this entire congregation with hunger. Then Yah said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven. The people will go out and gather a day's portion every day in Omer so that I can test them to find out whether they will walk according to my teaching, my Torah, or not. So on the sixth day, when they prepared what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather day by day. Look, I'm going to give this bread from heaven every day, but on the sixth day, I'm going to give them a portion. Okay, why are you doing that? What's that all about? 
So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, In the evening you will know that Adonai has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, then you will see the glory of the Lord. For he heard your complaining against him. Notice, they were coming after Moses and Aaron and blaming them. But Moses understood they were really complaining God. Every servant of God should always remember that. When God has put you in a place of authority and you're doing what he says to do and the people come against you, don't take it personally. Take it personally. They're mad at God. You're just the, 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 the figure, the substance that they can go after because you represent him. And as followers of Yeshua, understand that. That in the world, you're to represent Yeshua in the world. And when people find out you're believers, even in the workplace, they treat you a little differently. They find out you're really a believer. You're just religious. That's no big deal. Yeah? Lots of people are religious. But when you really are a follower of Yeshua and you live for him, your thoughts, your decisions, the way you live are based on following after God with all your heart. Believe me, people will treat you differently. Some with favor and some with disdain. They won't like you, but don't take it personally. Because if they love the Lord, they will love you to serve it. But if they don't want to serve God, you're, you're a thorn in their side because you're a reminder of God. Just remember that. Even Moses says, Aaron says, what are we? You complained against us. Then Moses says, Adonai will give you meat to eat in the evening and enough bread to fill you in the morning. Since Adonai hears your complaints that you muttered against him, what are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord, against Yah. Moses says to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, come near before the Lord because he has heard your complaining. Then as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation, of Bnei Yisrael, the sons of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, I have heard the complaining of the sons of Israel. Speak to them saying, at dusk you will eat meat and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am Yah, your God. See, when evening fell, quail came and came up and covered the camp. Moreover, in the morning, there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the layer of dew was gone, on the surface of the desert was a thin, flake-like frost, as fine as the frost on the ground. When the sons and children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that Yah has given to you to eat. This is the word that Adonai has commanded. Every man is to gather according to his need and omer per person. According to the number of people per household, each man is to take it for those who are in his tent. The children of Israel did so, and some gathered more and some less. When they measured it with an, with an omer, those who gathered more had nothing left over, and those that gathered less did not lack at all. Every man gathered according to his appetite. Also Moses said to them, Let no one save any of it until the morning. However, they did not listen to Moses. Some of them preserved it until morning, but it bred worms and rotted. So Moses was angry with them. So they're supposed to go out and gather Omer. It was enough for a person for that portion to eat. And they were to take it back into the house and cook it that morning. Get up early in the morning to get the daily bread. So you get the daily bread and you prepare, to, you prepare your bread for the day. You couldn't take any of it and say, well, I'm just only, I'm going to gather two omers for me. I'm going to cook one and I'm going to leave the other for the next day. It will breed worms. You can only get the bread you need for the day. Now, some people thought they would hoard it up for the extra days 
and try to get extra, and it did not keep to the next day. So this is the pattern that is established of these things. So it goes on, verse 21. So they gather it morning by morning, each man according to his needs. And as the sun became hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each individual. So all the leaders of the community came and informed Moses. But he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. And here's the situation. So they've been gathering, and they tried to gather more than one omer, and it turned to worms, That what they tried to keep extra. Then they get in the six days, and they were either to gather two. And they were like, whoa. And they went to Moses, but we were able to get two. So Moses tells them, this is what Yah has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a Shabbaton, a holy Shabbat to Adonai. Bake whatever you would bake and boil whatever you would boil. Store up for yourselves everything that remains to be kept until the morning. Now I want you to see something. He didn't say, God is established in the Sabbath right now. They're just going along, doing what he says to do. And they get to the sixth day, and God gives them double the amount. And when they get surprised by the double on the sixth day, and they go to Moses about it, God says, well, the reason why I'm doing this is tomorrow is my Sabbath. Here's the thing I'm thinking about. He didn't say, I am creating the Sabbath at this point. He says, no, tomorrow is my Sabbath. Now, this is new for Israel because they weren't doing it. But they suddenly realize that God has a Sabbath. Well, when did God have a Sabbath? From the time he finished creating. He's been keeping the Sabbath over. Even though for 2,500 years, nothing is mentioned about it, from God and his nature and his character, his seventh day is holy. See, and we see that also. You know, I shared this with you last time. I said, look at it very carefully. Actually, in the Garden of Eden, there are not very many commandments given. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and be fruitful and multiply. And take care of the garden. That was pretty much it. Take care of the garden. Watch over it. Protect it. Keep it. Be fruitful and multiply. Take dominion over the animals. For there's no and keep the Sabbath holy. He doesn't mention the Sabbath. Yet he doesn't mention a lot of other things either. He doesn't say anything about murdering. He doesn't say anything about lusting. He doesn't talk about the lust of the flesh. He doesn't talk about the pride of life. He doesn't talk about the lust of eyes. And yet Eve did all of those. When she went to take up the tree, she lusts for it. She lusts for it with her eyes. She lusts for it with, with her flesh. She saw it was good to eat and make you wise. She saw the pride of life, which First John says all that's in the world is the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes. She was tempted in all those ways and fell, and so did her husband. Who was there, by the way? He wasn't back at the house watching the football games. He was right there with her. Scripture says so clearly, and she gave it to a husband who was with her. So he observed the whole thing. And instead of taking his authority and telling a serpent to get out of the garden, because the Scripture says he's supposed to take dominion over all the creatures. And instead of taking dominion over that serpent, he just sat back and watched that serpent trick his wife. Just sit back. And then when his time came and she says, have some honey, he went, okay. He let his wife fall into sin. Could have protected her. He was right there. Men, as I shared with you last time, do not set aside your authority to protect your family. Do not set aside the authority to lead them in righteousness. Do not set aside your authority to proclaim the word of God in the household. It's been given to you. Women, married women, do not seek to usurp the authority from your husband. Pray that he will rise up and fulfill his calling. 
and win him according to scripture without a word by focusing on your inward conduct of a righteous and holy woman. Let that be the thing that shines, not your complaining against him all the time and nagging him for this, that, and the other. You want to go talk about your husband? Talk to God. Talk to God. Go to God and say, God, he, he, he acting just like Adam did in the garden. Just let me do whatever I want to do. He ain't doing anything right. He's not calling us to prayer. He's not speaking the word of God in the household. God, man, you do have the authority. Even if your wife hasn't told you, you have that authority. I know one man says, I'm the head of my household. My wife told me so. That's a good wife. That's a really good wife. But even if your wife doesn't tell you so, even if she's in rebellion against you, you still have a responsibility to set the standard of righteousness in your household. And you may have to do a lot of that on your knees, praying that God will work in your spouse's life. And you may have to spend a lot of it in repentance. You have not been, been doing what you're supposed to do as the head of the household. To be the head means to take the lead, to set the example of righteousness and holiness. To lay down your life for your wife. To be the one to say, I'm laying down for you, honey. See, women are called to something that's hard. Some of them can't even say the word. It's the submission word. Our society doesn't like that word. We're too busy trying to make everybody the same and equal, give them the same money, same pay, same Mercedes, same everything. We think if somebody down the street has a bigger house than you, there's injustice. And so we got to politically try to make everybody the same. We're very much socialistic in a society that's democratic republic. But we got a lot of socialist thinking that if I invited everybody in the congregation to come up, that I had a gift for you. And you saw me give somebody three gold coins, but when you came up, I gave you one, that you'll complain, even though it's a gift, which means you can't demand anything from me because it's a gift. And if I choose to give three gold coins to David and only one one gold coin to Stanley, Stanley has no right to complain. He should be thankful for his one gold coin because it's a gift. He didn't have anything before. Now he has one gold coin. But he's too busy. He can't even enjoy the one gold coin because this thing of equality is running through his head and he's looking over at David. Well, you gave him three. You need to... Put it together, give me two. He needs to give me one of his. And a lot of America's like that. Really. Not only America, around the world. Amazing thing about God is God doesn't have to be equal. He has no equal. He alone is God. There is no other God. He alone is God. Who can declare to him what he must do? No one. No one. It's just like the parable that Yeshua told of a guy, a business guy, was working and he saw some people hanging around at a 7-Eleven looking to be picked up for work for the day. I'm just trying to make it real. You know that's the case. You're looking for some work for the day? Go find yourself a good 7-Eleven. You see people hanging around looking for work for the day. One of my neighbors constantly is using people from 7-Eleven to do work in her house. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you probably use some people from the 7-Eleven to get work done at your house. Day laborers. And Yeshua says, this guy comes along and says, hey, what you doing? He says, nobody's hiring me. Picks the guy up and hires him and starts working. Then the whole day goes almost by, and he comes back, and there's one guy still laying around at the 7-Eleven. He's like, why are you still here? He says, no one's hired me. He says, look, I'll hire you. All right, got a job. He goes and works, and he works only a few hours of the day. So one guy works all day, eight hours of a day. The other guy works only a couple of hours, and pay time comes at the end of the day. And he gives them each their denarii. The guy who worked eight hours sees the guy that worked two hours, 
and say, hold it. I should get more than he did because he only worked two and I, I worked all day. And the guy says, I agree with you from the beginning that if you work for me for eight hours, I'll give you one denarii. Yeah, 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 but that guy didn't work eight. He only worked two. You know what he says about that guy? You unrighteous servant. He said, I should take away from you and give to another. Otherwise, he said, look, I, I don't owe you anything. We had an agreement. I know some people have a hard time with that passage in our Western equality thinking. But Yeshua tells the parable, and he makes it very clear that an employer is not obligated to pay everybody the same thing. Oh, I know that doesn't sit well with our society today. You know, I, I will tell you, it's up to you when you go to make that deal. You, you negotiate your pay. I had somebody tell me that many years ago. I found out my company was paying me way under what they were paying everybody else. Thank God I was a good worker, and they didn't want to get rid of me. When I found that out, and I said, hey, I found this out. And the guy says, well, let's see. And he said, yeah, we, are, we have been taking advantage of you. You're not even near the average of what we're paying people for your skill set. And so right there on the spot, he gave me a $15,000 bonus, up my salary like that. Boom. I said, whoa. But he did one more, and I'll never forget it because it's benefited me ever since. He was a group manager for the whole company. He took me aside, dug through, and he brought out this book. He says, this is for you. The name of the book was called How to Manage Your Career. He says, read this. There's a lot you need to learn. And basically, the book was saying, it's your responsibility to know what you're worth. It's your responsibility when you go out in the marketplace to, dis- to negotiate what you will get paid and not pay. Oh, yes, you might negotiate to the point that somebody doesn't want to hire you, but that's just the way it is. Maybe this guy won't hire me, but maybe he will. David might say, hey, I've looked over my finances, and I just can't afford to pay you that kind of money. But maybe he's doing better, and he says, yeah, I can pay you that. In fact, he might pay me a little bit more to get me. But you have a responsibility to negotiate what you're worth. Know what you're worth. Know what you're worth. Know what your skill set is. Know what God is giving you. Go in there. Don't just take whatever's thrown your way, but say, hold on. Do your research ahead of time. Find out in the Washington, D.C. area, in the DMV, the type of work you do, what is the pay? Because the pay in Washington, D.C. is not going to be the same thing in southwest part of Virginia, where they're going to cut your salary in half because the cost of living is so much cheaper there than it is to live in DMV. DMV is a very expensive place to live in. I saw a special once where where they, they, they started with $400,000, and they went out to the Midwest, and they just started walking straight towards D.C. from the Midwest and stopping in different cities and show you what $400,000 would get you. Out in the Midwest, where they were, $400,000 got you 100 acres of land with a pond, with a house that was 6,000 square feet, with your horses, everything was nice. It's like, ooh, man, there was nobody around for miles. And there wasn't even a Walmart near you. But it, that's what $400,000 would get you. Then as they zoomed in, they went all the way into Georgetown. It ended up in Georgetown. $400,000 brought you a efficiency. One little room with a galley kitchen and a room that, was, that you shared as your living room and your bedroom. You got that for $400 to live in Georgetown, right downtown. You go like, oh boy, no horses. No lakes, but you were in Georgetown. <laughs> Cream of the crop. Something makes you think about things, doesn't it? Anyway, that's off track. I don't know why I'm talking about that. Let's move on. So here we are, and the Lord is the provider. And the thing I want you to see is that the Sabbath was already in place. And he says, so, so this is what it says. A couple of things here. He says, it's God's Sabbath. Tomorrow is God's Shabbaton, a holy Sabbath. 
to the Lord, that Sabbath set apart. It's already in place. It's already happening. Just like in the Garden of Eden, that's what we were talking about before, even though that God established it there, even though he didn't command anybody to keep it, it doesn't mean that it wasn't in the nature of God. When Cain killed his brother, even before he killed him, God says, watch it. Sin is at the door. You need to dominate it. Sin was sin. Sin is transgression of the law. But the law was given that you can't kill your brother. But from God's perspective, it was wrong to kill your brother. Even when, Adam, even when Abraham was strong alone, and he gets in and he's afraid that, that Sarah, his wife, that they will get concerned that she uh, was so pretty that they would kill him to, to take her as a wife. He turns to her and he says, now you lie. Tell them. It was a half lie. It was a half truth. Tell them your sister. She was a half sister. Tell them sister and that way they won't kill me. And she does that and the king spots her and he's like, woohoo, she's a pretty one. I think I'm going to add her to, to my, my set of women. He seeks to do that and God interferes and God does it in a great way that he closes the womb of all the women of this king's land so that no one could have children. So he figured that something was going on judgment-wise. And when God speaks to this king, he says, look, I'm doing this to keep you from committing adultery. But where's the commandment that says, thou shall not commit adultery? You won't find it. Not until the law is given. But yet, from God's perspective, his nature and his character, adultery is wrong all the time. Murder is wrong all the time. Stealing is wrong. Idolatry is wrong. But there's no commandment in the garden that says, thou shall not have any other gods before you. Yet, when it does happen, there, is, there are consequences. Because in God's nature, he is holy. And he is righteous. And even if he hasn't told you what he thinks about a matter, it's not that he comes up with it at the moment that you ask. Murder is wrong because murder is wrong. Idolatry is wrong because it's wrong. It's God's nature to say that idolatry is wrong. Murder, adultery, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all those sinful things are not in God. God doesn't walk in sin. He's holy. And so to walk against the character of God is to transgress his ways. And even if he hadn't given you a commandment, it doesn't mean it's wrong. And we looked at several passages that dealt with that. I'm going to mention them. You can read them. Thank you. Go back a little bit here. A couple of them real quickly. Genesis 6, 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Continue. This is before the law is given. Man had already eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so therefore he, we are put in a place that we have to discern between it always because our great, great, many, many, great, many, many, great ancestor ate of the tree of the knowledge of and So we eat of it all the rest of the days of our lives, the scripture says. And so as soon as somebody's born, they're having to discern between what is good and evil. The Hebrew concept and the Jewish concept is called the Yetzirah, the inclination towards evil, Yetzirah. And there's also the Yetzer Tov, the inclination towards good. That's based on the knowledge of the good, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you have to discern between the two. The moment you're born, you have to decide. It says in Genesis that man chose evil continually. Every imagination of the story. So God decides to wipe out everybody but one family. Didn't say that God gave them all the commandments, 
but say it's built into them. Look at Romans 1, 18 to 32. Romans 1, 18 to 32. It speaks of the wrath of God is revealed. And because of that, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. That the creation itself bears witness of God and who he is. That God has placed in every human being a sense of knowing what is good and evil. Even if they've never heard the Ten Commandments, even if they've never seen the Ten Commandments, there's something inside. You can watch it with children. One little baby's playing with a toy. A little baby crawls over and snatches that toy out of the other baby's hand, and you got a fight on the hand. That other little baby realized, you, you can't take that from me. Some of them will take it and bang the other kid upside the head. Nobody taught them how to do that. They naturally will do these things. I know I raised a bunch of kids, and I didn't, half the stuff that I'm like, where did they get that from? The knowledge of good and evil is built inside. Choose. It's up for me to train them up in the right way to go and tell them this is what's right and this is what's wrong to reinforce things. Romans 2, 12 to 15. It talks about whether you have the law or without, or you don't have the law, that those who do not have the law, speaking of the nations, show while they excuse and accuse one another that the law of God is written in their hearts even though they've never been given the commandments. Like I said to you last time, the Soviet Union is an atheistic country. And yet they have laws against stealing and murdering and lying and cheating and all that stuff. It's considered wrong by atheists who don't even believe in God. And yet they establish rules that excuse and accuse one another because it's built inside of them. Romans 5, 12 to 15 says, Sin was in the world before the law. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who didn't even commit the same transgression. So just because, and I put this to you, and I want you to still put it to you again to think about, is it possible that if all, of all the other commandments, coveting, idolatry, now, Adam and Eve did not honor their, their spiritual parent. They chose the devil over obeying. They disobeyed. Honor your mother and father. They did not honor their father. They disobeyed and dishonored. And they got him kicked out of the garden because of that. And you can walk through all the commandments. And they all were broken right there within the first part of Genesis, way before the Torah was given as law. And yet, none of them are put like, well, you know, it's not wrong because you didn't know. No, it was considered wrong. Is it possible that of all the other nine of the commandments, can be seen before the Torah is given. Is it possible that from God's perspective that the commandment concerning Shabbat is in his heart? And if the people had simply walked with him in the garden, spent time with him, they would have seen his pattern. And his pattern would have been, it's Shabbat. Tomorrow's my Shabbat. I'm going to chill. I'm remembering, because the purpose of the Shabbat is a way of remembering that God is the creator of heaven and earth. It's his purpose. It's a reminder. Why are you stopping on the seventh day? Because it's a reminder that God created all those six days and the seventh day he set aside. I'm acknowledging him as creator and maker of heaven and earth. And that's what happens here. Moses doesn't say, oh, and God's making a Sabbath tomorrow. No, he says, no, 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 tomorrow's God's Sabbath. And now God is extending it to you, O house of Israel, O house of Judah. Now, a couple of things I want to point out that I think is important. He says, bake whatever you would bake and boil whatever you would boil. Store up for yourself everything that remains to be kept until the morning. It's interesting the way this is worded. Bake what you would bake. They got double portions. Boil whatever you boil. And the context is what you need for today. It's the sixth day. And what remains, 
but you can only eat an Omer a day. You got two Omer, so you cooked up one Omer. And the other part of the Omer, he says, whatever remains, set it aside to be eaten on the seventh day. It hasn't been boiled. It hasn't been cooked yet. It's not cooked yet. See, some people have already tried that. They tried that on the first day, the second day, third day. They tried to get more than the Omer than they were supposed to have because you only got enough Omer for your deli bread, what you could eat for the day. And then they, some try to get two Omer's on a Monday, and what happened to the part? They cooked up the first part, and the part they kept, tried to keep to the next day, it turned to worms. They tried it on Tuesday, it turned to worms. Wednesday, turned to worms. Thursday, turned to worms. Friday, they go out, there's a double portion. They cook the Omer, what they could eat for the day, and the scripture said, the rest that remains, store up for yourselves everything that remains. In other words, the stuff that's not your deli bread for the sixth day, because you got bread for the next day, and you, you got the manna, and then you set it aside. Look what it says. So they set it aside until the morning, just as Moses instructed. And it did not rot, nor were there any worms. Which shows it did not, because some people say, oh no, they cooked everything, and they set aside. Well, there was never a problem with cooking stuff. If you cooked it, it didn't bread worms. Didn't, but if you did not cook it, you tried to save it to the next day, it would breed worms. So this time, there's a portion that's for the Sabbath that you got on the sixth day that you can put in the jar and wait for the next day to prepare it. In other words, it was prepared on Shabbat. Now, I know this is going to mess with some people because some people read, looked at rabbinical Judaism enough to say, well, no, you're not allowed to cook on the Sabbath. The Bible doesn't teach that. It doesn't teach that. That's rabbinical. We will get heavy up the road, Lord willing, into rabbinics and the decisions that were made. But here's a scripture that's very clear when you look at its context that a part was set aside for the seventh day, and the only time they would eat it when they prepared was the next day, was the seventh day. They didn't have to go out of their place on the seventh day to go look for it. Where is the manna? Where is it? The Afrikoven is hidden somewhere in here. They didn't have to do that. They already had it in their house. So you just wake up in the morning, and there's this jar of manna that hasn't been prepared yet, and say, oh, it's time to cook some manna pancakes. And they went and they prepared their manna pancakes. You say, well, how do you have some sense of that? Well, I think God had already taught him that. When he goes, let me read a few more verses and I'll show you. So they laid it up to the morning, as Moses said, and it did not stink, neither was there any worms therein. And Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath unto the Lord. Today you shall not find it in the field. In other words, the manna you got that didn't breed worms, that kept overnight, that's what you're going to use to prepare your food. That's the food you're going to use. Six days you should gather, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, in it there shall be none. You can't go out in the fields on the seventh day and find any manna, because there wouldn't be any out there. And it came to pass that some, that there were some who went out on the seventh day anyway. They were really greedy. They already had an Omer for, for, the, for the Sabbath, but they went out to get more. And the Lord said to Moses, how long were you confused to keep my mitzvah and my laws, my Torah? See, for that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. This is important too. It's God's Sabbath. He says it's his Sabbath, but he has given it. And he gives it to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He says, I'm giving this to you for your provision. I'm giving you this. I'm giving you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day the bread of two days. Abide you every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. We're going to deal with that. Lord willing, wrote. But I want to show you something. How many know about Passover? The first day of Passover, is it considered a Shabbat? Yes or no? Huh? Yes? And the seventh day of Shabbat, is it considered, I mean, seventh day of unleavened bread, is it considered 
of Shabbat? Yes. Well, let me read something. And the children of Israel knew this. In Exodus 12, 16. And in the first day there should be a holy convocation. And the seventh day there should be a holy convocation to you. No manner of work should be done in them, except which every man must eat that only may be done of you. In other words, it's a Sabbath day set aside, but you could prepare food on that day. No other work except what you're supposed to eat. I know I'm going against some rabbinical concepts, and I know many of you have embraced those concepts, but I'm simply saying, and, and, and if you still want to embrace that, that's fine. But I want to say to you that the Scriptures do not say what some say the Scripture says, that you cannot cook on Shabbat. It doesn't say that. It just doesn't say it. The Scriptures make it very clear that God gave two Omer's. One Omer you had to cook for the sixth day, and the other Omer would keep you to prepare on the Sabbath. Just a little bit of insight, things that are there. What can we conclude from this whole chapter, Exodus 16? The Sabbath is still after the sixth day. He didn't change it. The Sabbath is still holy. Over 2,500 years have gone by, and the Sabbath is still holy. The Sabbath is to Yah. It is His. But He's given it to Israel as a blessing. The Sabbath is considered to be still holy, set apart as a holy day unto the Lord. That the Sabbath was already operating and in place. Moses says, tomorrow's God's Sabbath because the next day was God's Sabbath. He wasn't establishing it at that point, nor was he established at the law of Moses. It was established way back at creation. That's when it was established. And it's been there all along the way. And Yah has been enjoying his Sabbath. And now he invites the children of Israel to enter into it and gives it to them as a special blessing. And we're going to see up the road how he even makes it a stronger blessing, even a requirement than, than anything before. But time's up. We're hungry. Hilton's here. That means the food must be ready because he's chilling, not in the kitchen. He's got food for us. And so we want to close up there. We will deal, Lord willing, with the part that says, let no man go out of his place. All of you are out of your place today. You've left your homes. 